Sometimes our commander-in-chief, ideally upholder of the law, fails to inspire us. Take the 1970s. Well, I'm not a crook. Or the 90s. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. And now the 21st century. I'm an extremely stable genius. You're about to hear two attorneys make sense out of a legal system some say is a train wreck. Here are Royal Oaks and Connor Oaks. This is Too Many Lawyers. This is Too Many Lawyers. I'm Royal Oaks. And I'm Connor Oaks. So the Amy Coney Barrett hearing continues on, Connor. Uh, seems on track from the Republicans' standpoint. Uh, she actually got pretty positive reviews uh, from uh, kind of the mainstream press that I think actually is pretty skeptical about her and, and angry about her. Uh, I think they sort of grudgingly acknowledged that she kind of tap danced uh, through things fairly well. In other words, no big landmines exploded. No, I mean, no Kavanaugh beer revelations. But once we have a Kavanaugh beer uh, revelation, sexual assault allegation, credible witness come forward and say this person's not fit to be on the Supreme Court, and it turns out that nothing matters. And now that we're in a pandemic, that we we know there's just no way to stop uh, someone who's put up by a party who has the votes to actually march through the hearings. And the Democrats' attitude is probably, the DNC's attitude is probably, uh, if we rock the boat too much and we make ourselves susceptible to uh, looking like we're attacking this poor, uh, innocent Supreme Court justice who just wants to be one of the most powerful people in the whole world. With seven kids lined up in the front row. And she's got seven kids. Uh, Plus a husband. Yeah, then that that could hurt their uh, chance of of winning. Uh, They're they're way in the lead. Why rock the boat? So we're going to get into the consequences of of the hearing that probably will lead to a pretty quick confirmation. We're also going to talk about, this was interesting to me, this this is a virtual debate that President Trump objected to. Well, there's precedent for that. Speaking of judicial Love president, stuff, big president fan. I would describe it as a, a super president. Yeah, there was a Kennedy-Nixon debate in 1960 that was virtual. We'll give you the details on that. We'll also talk about the mystery of the Bo Biden laptop, and also um, Hunter Biden. Excuse yeah. me, Hunter Biden. Yeah, and because uh, that is really a weird mystery. Some Delaware computer uh, repair man. Yeah, you know, we'll get into that briefly. And briefly. At the very end, we're going to explain how a movie, Pleasantville, uh, reminded me of why I'm a libertarian. Oh God. We'll get uh, Connor's take on that as well. So let's start though with Amy Coney Barrett. I, I wonder right off the bat, w- w- do we have to be calling her Amy Coney Barrett because that makes her sound like a serial, serial killer. killer? Yeah, the three names. Yeah, I mean John Wayne Gacy. Right. Or, or an assassin, John Wilkes Booth. You never mm-hmm. say that. John yeah. Booth killed Lincoln. Lee right. Harvey Oswald. It's right. never Lee well, this was Oswald. A, this was a a, a precedent. Uh, we love precedents, right? Set in order to avoid people named. Yeah, the uh, good Lee John Oswalds Booths. won't right. be embarrassed. There's a lot of John Booths out there. Yeah. Darn it! And we gotta make sure that they're not tarred with the same yeah. brush. So, you're, so you're, newspapers <laughs> gave them. Sure. You don't want the good Lee Oswald to show up uh, at the plant the next day and Bert says, "Hey." I'm sure glad they called him Lee Harvey Oswald because I thought maybe you'd killed the president. uh, So there's a benefit to this. Yeah, you're right. Uh, this was at the cotton plant specifically, um, where where they work presumably. Were there plants? I don't know. When, when Lincoln was president, be, did they call him the plant? Be, I, I was thinking more of 1963. Of but uh, all right, so Amy Coney Barrett with all three of her names. Um, she, you know, I think that as you were suggesting, she's probably headed for confirmation. It sounds right. like the Republicans are gonna gonna stick together. Certainly, the Democrats are gonna stick together. I yeah. guess one question is whether this will release the Kraken 
whether the Democrats, when they take over next year, because let's assume that this is very likely mm-hmm. they win the presidency, they hold on to the House. Right. And I think they the polls suggest even. that they're going to take over the Senate it's as potentially, well. It's potentially. It's still up in the air, for sure. So are we going to see, for example, two more states? Uh, right, 104 Port- senators. Puerto, right. Puerto Rico and, and Washington, D.C. Uh, are we going to see no more filibuster? Mm-hmm. Are we going to see no more electoral college? Let's, let's talk about the states for openers. You know, the last time we added states, of course, was Hawaii and Alaska right. in 1959 and 1960. And it's interesting. You, you think of Hawaii as being an automatic Democrat state mm-hmm. now, yeah. and it has been for a long time. But back then, President Eisenhower was pushing for Hawaii, and it was perceived as it would be Republican for sure. Mm. And so the Democrats were thinking, oh, wait a minute, that's two more Republican senators. And yeah. so the idea was that they would add Alaska and you'd have two Republicans from Hawaii, two from Alaska. The whole point was equality. We're not going to give a huge edge to one oh, side. Oh, so, so did they expect Alaska yes, to be Democratic? Expect, exactly. And and so they wanted two and two. That's why wow. they were ushered in together, because yeah. it was a big political thing. Now, fast forward. Uh, we're now looking at Puerto Rico and Washington, D.C. Right. Uh, nobody thinks that you're going to get any Republican senators from Puerto Rico or Washington, D.C. Correct. And so one question is, is that is that really fair? Is it going to be seen by the nation well, yeah. as kind of a, a pretty naked power grab? Now, yeah, I know the Democrats can say, you want to talk naked power grab? You look it up right. in the dictionary, and there's Merrick, Merrick Garland's Garland. face. Not yeah. Merrick Garland's face, Mitch McConnell's well, face. poor Merrick Garland got shafted, so yeah, right. his face you're, is in you're there, right. too. Yeah. Their faces can be together. They're both <laughs> frowning at each other. Right, right, right. But, I mean, really? Is that going to be okay? Of course, I guess then that leads to the other question— you know, four more justices to the U.S. Supreme Court, as sure. well as four more senators. Well, let's talk first. Is America going to be okay with all this? Yeah, let's talk first about uh, the potential for these two new states, which I think is a, a fascinating question, and it's, it's a question— They've been lobbying for it for decades. Yeah, it's long overdue. The idea that the that D.C.'s uh, license plates say st- taxation without What about without Guam, where America's day begins? Ooh, nice, yeah. And Virgin I, Islands. I mean, th- we have, a, we have a, a massive uh, network of our post-imperial holdings— uh, that we call territories or uh, you know unaffiliated uh, areas or whatever the the different names for them. There are about twelve different designations, and they all inter- interact with each other differently. And they're about how much local control they have, how much military control versus civilian control they have, whether we can put nuclear weapons there, what century we got these territorial holdings in, and some of them. Uh, Generally, there's a consensus that they'd like to be a state, and some of them there's a generally a consensus that they don't. And there are, you know, obviously before Puerto Rico uh, or D.C. would become states, there would be referendums held in those territories. And I believe the D.C. Uh, has already gone through that process, and and, and uh, they've gotten to the stage where people have said, "Yeah, we want to be a state." Um, but uh, Puerto Rico notably has not yet gotten to that point. Um, although there is uh, a, a lot of uh, there are a lot of Puerto Ricans who would like to uh, it to become a state, but really the question is in, in, that you brought up is a good one is there is the only way to expand our uh, Congress um, or to add new states based on a sense of balance of uh, uh, ideological balance where we would say the the Republican Party and the Democratic Party would both be okay with it and this is not I'm not talking about a practical concern of like oh you can't get this done without right. enough votes I'm talking about would the American people think that that's the right way to do it or the fair way to get to do it I actually don't think so I think that the American people are able to disconnect to this concept from the idea of ideological balance we don't like the idea that we've got conservatives 
states and, and, and liberal states. That Nobody likes that idea. We all recognize that California and New York are dominated by uh, liberal politics and that Alabama and, uh, is not. But we don't, we don't love the idea. We also know the, the history, and we'll, we'll quickly be reminded of the history, that, for example— Conservatives wanted uh, to to do this and were successful in doing this with the Dakotas. When when the Dakota territories, uh, previously you know held by uh, First Nations peoples, the Dakotas um, in 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 the Midwest, they were looking to become states. They only chopped them into North and South Dakota in order to get four conservative senators. They right. they didn't actually care about chopping North and South Dakota in in two for any meaningful geographic or cultural reason. Uh, It was simply the idea, well, we're going to bring in states. How about we bring in double the states and we get double the representation for this area? And And back in the slavery times, of course, you would add uh, states and carve it up based on pleasing the South as well as the North. Well, we're going to add one slave state and one free state. And that way we'd balance the expansion of. And this is practically how things were done. I have an idea. You've inspired me. Well, fine. We'll have Washington, D.C. Exactly. We'll have Puerto Rico. We'll also have Central Dakota Boom. and South Wyoming. Chop it. Let's Why do not? it. That Absolutely. Way everybody gets four or more senators. Yeah, and there's three people in South right. Wyoming, and they all Congressman have— Congressman Schiff <laughs> about Central Dakota I mean, idea. Okay. I, I think that is the—I think that's probably the next logical step. If Puerto Rico statehood and D.C. statehood gain enough momentum, there will be a political movement on the other side that says, look, if you want to do that and unbalance our sacred uh, institution of Congress, where for some reason we think it's perfect and the institution has has no flaws and we should maintain the status quo, even though it's completely ineffectual and doesn't help the American people, uh, then you're going to have to chop into South Wyoming or whatever. So that's, you know, that's where this is eventually going, I think, theoretically, because there's no other way to defend it. You cannot go out there uh, you know, in terms of like there's no other conservative argument that you can make for balance because you cannot find a territory out there that will be solidly uh, conservative. No, There's just no way right. to do it. You may be right. You mentioned a few minutes ago uh, the imperialist conduct by America, and mm-hmm. you know it's it's so true. I think we've got to have a, a counterbalance to that because when I think back to the 20th century, the imperialistic mischief that we committed in 1917 by helping to win the war against uh, Germany, and then the right. imperialistic mischief we committed mm-hmm. in 1945 right. by helping to defeat Nazism yeah. and fascism was terrible, yeah. and the imperialistic so mis- <laughs> mischief we committed in 1989 when we had forced the destruction of the Soviet Union and, right. and won the Cold War yeah. and freed billions of people. Yeah. I We've got a lot to explain for. And so, yes, D.C. and Puerto Rico should be states. Hooray! When, we're when, on the same page. When we come back, we're going to talk a little bit about the uh, the huge cases that uh, could face a Justice Amy Coney Barrett. Uh, Obamacare? Is it, uh, do we ring down the curtain on Obamacare? Mm-hmm. And what about abortion? She has a bit of a paper trail there as well. Stick with us here on Too Many Lawyers. Connor, please tell folks how they can rate and subscribe us. Uh, that's the most important thing to us, really. Um, uh, all we want for Christmas. Oh, sorry. Checks, for, cash. For Halloween would be most important. Th- this year. No trick-or-treating. Don't bring candy by my house. Do not knock on the door. I don't want to see you. I want to see you leave us that sweet, sweet candy review uh, on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or Spotify or wherever else you get uh, your podcast, go on there, leave us a five-star review or whatever uh, rating scale that your app uses, and leave us a, a, a little comment saying how great we are. We really appreciate it. We'll be right back on Too Many Lawyers. 
This is Too Many Lawyers. I'm Royal Oaks. And I'm Connor Oaks. So what about the abortion issue? Uh, do you think uh, f- fans of Roe versus Wade uh, seriously should be worried? Uh, is Amy Coney Barrett a stealth vote to uh, to dump it? It's interesting. I would she- say she's the least stealth vote to dump it of all time well, so far. In, in all of potential uh, uh, Supreme Court jurists, she's the least stealthy And she it. did increase the level of anxiety when she said, well, there are super precedents. Right. That basically untouchable, like Brown versus Board of Education. And she said, mm, I'm not sure that I would put Roe versus Wade in that bucket because, I mean, Senator, just look at all those swirling questions flying yeah. around this room like Casper the unfriendly ghost. Uh, we're talking about abortion. Maybe that means it's not a super president. Is that a, a, a not so stealthy President way of suggesting real. that you, you think she actually would join Clarence Thomas Absolutely. And, and Aaliyah? And Absolutely. There's no doubt in my mind. This whole talk about— What about same-sex marriage, you know, in spite of the reliance interests? She can also say, you know what, that uh, Obergfell decision that was wrongly decided has only been a few years ago. Absolutely. Now, it's not uh, the process—that's not the the process that, you know, we we don't have to be as worried about that uh, potentially hitting as as soon as— uh, as as abortion, uh, which could happen, you know, qu- quicker than uh, than gay marriage for some structural reasons, but but there is there is uh, there's no you know louder dog whistle th- that you hear in American politics about abortion than this idea of uh, super precedent and the idea that. Uh, some laws are untouchable by Supreme Court jurists, but some laws aren't. That artificial distinction, which is complete gibberish, total nonsense, is simply a way to reassure people and to, to fight against the slippery slope argument that reasonable people bring up to say, well, if you don't actually believe in precedent, then you know, then anything is on the table, even our most closely held and, and highly valued uh, successes and wins uh, in Supreme Court jurisprudence. You could undo any and all of them. And shockingly, amazingly, I, I just don't even see the, 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 the political reason why she, she did this and went into this. I think this is her naked sort of partisanship uh, and, and sort of the bubble that she lives in. But there is Shining a way. Through but she, there is a way, Connor, for her to chip away without actually overturning it. Oh, absolutely. She could have done that, but she didn't do that. That's the most shocking, well, but let's amazing lo- thing. Let's, let's look at some of her, her recent rulings. Sure. In, in 2019, she was part of a, a majority Seventh Circuit panel decision upholding a Chicago ordinance that set boundaries for advocacy outside of abortion clinics. Mm-hmm. Two years ago, she dissented. Majority said the Indiana law was unconstitutional. It tried to ban abortions based on a fetus's sex. Mm-hmm. Race or disability, and she dissented from that. Uh, last year, she dissented uh, where the majority barred a law. They said, no, you can't have a law saying the parents have the right to get notice regarding the minor's abortion. So right. it sounds like she's willing to stand up for <clears throat> restrictions, but do you, is there really evidence that she's going, going to embrace these people that are teeing up clearly loser lawsuits that basically say, you know, get rid of all abortion, and they're you know hoping and praying that somehow a receptive Supreme Court will, will say yeah, yes. They're only really loser lawsuits until they're a winner lawsuit. This is this is the pr- procedure right. for how people overturn Supreme Court precedent. They go find increasingly and, and more, you know, a perfectly sympathetic plaintiffs that they, you know, shop for and then push their cases up and they lose and they lose and they lose and they lose. And then eventually they get to the Supreme Court. And sometimes there's a political movement uh, and a sympathetic Supreme Court that actually changes their mind. And liberals do this on the other side, too. They plaintiff shop for the perfect plaintiff and then get them, uh, you know, all the way up to the Supreme Court. This is just how uh, legislation is done through the judiciary in this country, which is generally pretty crazy, but we do it, right? It This, this is the process. And it's entirely believable that she will do it because of 
her past, you know, she as she in her paperwork where she discloses her, you know, history uh, and uh, her, her writings and everything else. She failed to mention that she signed on to this big political ad that was vehemently anti-abortion. She said she signed it on the way out of church. Yeah, didn't even know. She was distracted just... by the sermon. <laughs> I, aren't we all right? We just get that glowing, warm feeling inside, and then I'll sign anything they put in front of me right after that. That's how they got my prenup. Um, that's that's <laughs> not true. I'm going to take all my spouse's money. I promise. Um, so, so look, this is a woman who she could have sleepwalked through, sleptwalked through Hard her. To say. Thank you. Her confirmation hearings. She could have stuck to the line that Ginsburg and Kagan, as she pointed out, have all done. Everybody in modern recent history has done. She was more forthcoming than which some is of them. To, yes, it, it, she was. She came out and said, I don't, I don't I think that there's this concept of super precedent. And I think that there are some things that are untouchable. And uh, the, the, therefore, by implication, there are some things that aren't untouchable. And she didn't have to do that. And by doing that and when she didn't have to do that, I think she really does betray. She shows us her hand of cards that that she actually is more ideologically extreme than largely than any okay, other so, even conservative. Jur- I mean, Kavanaugh, come on! So like, as you these say, guys are conservatives, but they're not vehement. They're as not. As you angry say, this is down it. the road a little bit, but in a staring us in the face, a week, literally one week after the election, yeah. is the Obamacare decision. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about that. The mm. argument by the Republicans is that well, when Congress got rid of the tax penalty in the Obamacare individual mandate mm-hmm. to maintain health insurance, and the tax penalty had been upheld held by Roberts and, and the liberals in the court uh, under the congressional taxing power. That rendered the mandate unconstitutional, that the mandate was so important the whole law must fail. Now, right. the Fifth Circuit agreed the mandate was unconstitutional, but it told the Texas federal trial court judge, hey, reconsider the ruling about deeming the entire law null and void. Right. So the Fifth Circuit did not toss Obamacare. Instead, it handed it down to the trial court for that question. Meantime, the Fifth Circuit's ruling was appealed by defenders of Obamacare, and so the high court took up the appeal. So the high court is not really evaluating on November 10 the question of whether the entire law must fail. It will only be evaluating the question of whether the Fifth Circuit got it right when it declared the mandate was unconstitutional now that there was no tax to support it. So one option for the court would be to say the plaintiffs, the the Democrats, lack standing. The whole suit would be just tossed out. And the trial court would then look at the question of whether the whole law should be tossed. That's down the road. The second option, the court could find that the mandate is severable from the rest of Obamacare. So it's no big deal if the, even if the mandate is unconstitutional. Right. And that's, I think, what a lot of people think will happen. A yeah. third option is the court could theoretically find the mandate was so central to Obamacare that if the mandate fails as it has, the rest of the law fails with it. Do we have any sense as to how uh, Amy Coney Barrett, uh, I wish her initials were ABC instead Instead of of ACB. It's very confusing. Uh, Any sense as to where she might come out? Well, interesting, you might ask, because she wrote a 2017 Law Journal article in which she said... You're not going to hold that against her. (laughs) Chief Justice, just just her opinions, in terms of determining her opinions, why would I hold those, right? right. Uh, so she wrote that Chief Justice John Roberts, uh, in the Sebelius case, National Federation of Independent Business versus Sebelius, which upheld Obamacare. That's the case where John Roberts saved Obamacare. She said that John Roberts had, quote, pushed the Affordable Care Act beyond its plausible meaning to save the statute. Interesting. She, she thinks John Roberts went beyond the, the statute's plausible meaning, which, of course, is just her version of saying she disagrees. Um, she also said that he had, quote, had he treated the payment as the statute did as a penalty, he would have had to invalidate the statute as, li- statute as lying beyond Congress's commerce power, which is actually that's just a statement of how it worked. Right. So 
she is saying that based on the, the fact that this is how this works, how we, we treat the payment either as a, a, a Congress's uh, a regulation uh, a via Congress's right to regulate interstate commerce versus uh, a tax versus a penalty. That is the mechanism uh, that you have to view the lens through and that they're harsh, different categories. They're, they are, are just different categories that can and narrow the twain shall meet. And she said, well, John Roberts screwed this up. He, inva- he, he pushed this statute beyond its reasonable meaning, which is, of course, uh, a good way uh, to completely throw the entire thing out, which is she, what is she's absolutely going to do when she's on the bench. There's no reason that she would write this opinion um, in in 2017 if it wasn't her position unless you think there's some conspiracy theory level of insanity where she after she's appointed by trump to the federal bench she writes this uh uh uh, uh 2017 uh, law review article or sorry right before i guess this would be right before she then uses that to get onto the federal bench and then she tells trump uh, over and over oh yeah 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 i'm your good guy behind the behind the the, the scenes i'm i'm on your team and i'm totally going to up uh, overturn obamacare and then trump the guy who appointed her goes yeah. out and says i promise i will appoint supreme court justices and and other federal be- uh, people to the federal bench uh, who will overturn Obamacare because Obamacare, blah, 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 is super bad. I hate it. And Obama is evil. Uh, and I'm, also I'm super buying, Muslim. I'm buying into of the conspiracy course. theory. She de- you the think other, this is a conspiracy? Yeah. You the think other she's, thing, she's Connor, just lying Here's what Trump? you don't know, Connor. She had a childhood crush on David Souter. And so that... Literally no one has ever had a crush on David Souter. <laughs> uh, when we come back, we are going to talk about how this uh, there was a virtual debate uh, between presidential candidates uh, back in 1960. Stick with us on Too Many Lawyers. This is Too Many Lawyers. I'm Royal Oaks. And I'm still Connor Oaks. And uh, so Donald Trump, uh, strangely, uh, bailed out on the uh, virtual debate that the debate commission uh, proposed. And very was, strangely. Very weird, because he's way behind in the polls. He knows it. His people know it. You've got to do something to shake it up. He right. had an opportunity to have uh, to have a debate with Biden, and, and Trump firmly believes that Biden is going to have a senior moment that will right. swing millions of votes, and he throws it away. So, you right. know, there's a rever- no virtual debate. Well, here's the nice political trivia that I didn't realize. I thought it was a big presidential uh, debate buff. I didn't realize they had a virtual debate in 1960 when John Kennedy and, and Richard Nixon kicked off the modern era of, the, the debating. Era pre- pre- of, of presidential debating. Televised but of course, it was debating. the very first presidential televised debate, and so there were four of them, actually. The first one was the famous one where Nixon looked so bad and, and Kennedy looked great and the people who listened on radio thought oh, Nixon had a slight edge and people who watched on TV said we're not voting for that corpse so the fourth debate in this series uh, Nixon happened to be in Los Angeles and Kennedy was in New York and so they had him on a split screen yeah and so there was precedent we have it. the technology so, so the, the fun part about it to me was the TV people wanted to make sure that everything was exactly the same on the two sets in New York really? and California to, to, down to the color of the paint on the wall behind the presidents and here's here's the fun fact connor uh a can of paint was flown from new york to los angeles amazing. so that the law nixon set would look exactly like the kennedy amazing set. so my can you imagine you know the can of paint is there in first class and the steward <laughs> the secret service is, is would you like it would you like your nuts warmed uh, 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 you know and the rumor has it connor that the can of paint got drunk on a couple of glasses of paint thinner and he hit on a can my of spackle God. sitting next to him that's that's true story this is me too before me too you're right yeah. this is tra- tragic hello speaking of tragic 
tragic. Uh, can you imagine how Hunter uh, Biden felt when he goes to a repair guy in Delaware to repair three laptops? He didn't, but okay. And some somebody who looked like him did. Uh, and so the guy apparently, tell me if you if I have this right. Mm-hmm. Um, the the repair man uh, tries to fix the laptops. Apparently, two of them are just totally gonzo. One of them, he can get something out of it. And he notices all this, you know, Joe Biden, Hunter Biden stuff back and forth. And nobody shows up for the laptops. You know, it's a mystery man. He's gone or whatever. Right. So he has a friend who knows somebody at the FBI. So it winds up with the FBI. They're not all that interested in it. So no FBI. Nobody comes back for the hard drives. But they've got a copy of it. Somehow the repair guy gives it to a, a lawyer who knows Rudy Giuliani. Rudy yeah. Giuliani gives it to the, the New York Post. And so now the question is, well, is this real? It looks like uh, some Russian guy is saying, oh, thank you for introducing me to Father Joe Biden. And you, we had a fine meeting. And right. of course, you know, that's not on Joe's official schedule. Isn't it easy uh, to take a look at a hard drive and have a computer expert figure out this is a total fake or, wow, this sure looks like Hunter and Joe. And why can't they confirm if it's legit and if it does establish that Joe lied? I I don't see the country getting whipped up into a frenzy over this. But if it's for real, I mean, aren't people entitled to know if uh, Joe Biden did lie about his involvement with the Russians? The story is so incredibly uh, bizarre and unbelievable on its face that that Almost every major uh, you know, newspaper and, uh, and and television network uh, that saw it said we can't responsibly, you know, report on this case. But weren't some outlets situation. apologizing for what looked like censorship and and you know uh, knee jerk reaction? And didn't Twitter or was it Facebook who said so? Twitter uh, after the New York Post posted uh, links to a bunch uh, of its reporting, because it's basically the National Enquirer, um, uh, on this topic. They don't care about anything. They just took the story that they got handed to them by literal Steve Bannon and said, well, this seems like a great idea and we should definitely run with it. Um, We've got a picture of of Hunter Biden smoking crack and we're not going to let that go. Um, So after that happens, Twitter says, "Um, so what has been posted here are links to personally identifiable information, things like uh, addresses and phone numbers and email addresses and and personal photos uh, that are, you know, uh, were, were, were taken, but then are being published without permission. This is the same sort of policy uh, that Twitter has to prevent people from, uh, say, say, you know, leaking someone else's nude photos. And I mean, these are literal, basically exact same thing, but of Hunter Biden. And if you post a, a famous person's or celebrity's uh, uh, nude photos on Online, uh, Twitter has a policy where they shut it down and they say, look, right. we're not going to allow people to trade on this celebrity's uh, uh, dick pic or whatever else and, and make so money on it. So why they apologize for this one? They, they didn't apologize for this one. They simply, Twitter simply said, this is why we did this, period. This New York Post article oh, had a bunch of I thought they were personally- backing off. I thought they were saying that in retrospect, they really shouldn't have done it. What they did sort of smacked of censorship. No, I, I, not to my understanding. This is, this is I, that's that's the conservative media's <laughs> narrative of, oh my gosh, the big media giants are censoring us again, when they actually have no reason to believe that actually did happen at all. It's. This this is a very very suspect story for a bunch of practical reasons. That I mean the 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 you know the bare details of it are just so unbelievable on its face. The idea that for some reason Hunter Biden, who lived in California at the time, uh, would have uh, somehow delivered three laptops uh, to be repaired by a a repair shop, a small weird. repair shop yeah. in, in Delaware. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
for a total sum of $85, which is like incredibly, unbelievably cheap for, for the work that apparently Maybe had they had done, a sale. This data recovery. Yeah. So he flew across the country from California <laughs> to Delaware to get a cheap deal on getting yeah. his laptops uh, data recovered uh, after it was sustained water damage. Um Knowing, of course, that he was handing over to a, not a reputable dealer like an Apple store or someone else, but to some random tiny oh, oh, computer sure. when shop. When you put it that way, it sounds unlikely. Yeah, that he's handing over this uh, uh, computer with videos of him smoking crack on it as though, well, I'm sure they won't look at the data that they're Confession is good for the soul, <laughs> even if you're confessing to a Delaware computer right, repair guy. And it just, I mean, un- unbelievable that you, you would never give unencrypted and it's unencrypted because with you know modern encryption you can't break it even if uh, even if it's uh, you have it in hand uh, he gave unencrypted information to this random third party that he didn't know even though he's the son of the vice president of the United States right. and there's a video of him smoking crack on it the, the 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 provenance of this data is so incredibly suspicious I didn't even hear could, about the video we're we're sure that maybe such it's a video an image on? maybe it's an image I, oh, okay. I don't know it doesn't matter what what, what what really matters is that Rudy Giuliani is out there now on social media, things like Twitter, desperately trying to prove that this is actually uh, uh, the this is actually Hunter Biden's uh, laptop because it had a, a Bo Biden Foundation sticker on it when it was handed over to the uh, to the Delaware repair shop. I mean, complete complete nonsense. His his uh, Rudy Giuliani's best argument is: Look, there are real text messages from uh, from. Uh, Joe Biden to Hunter Biden that are stored on these hard drives of these laptops. Right. And the way that the way that we make that connection and we know they're real text messages uh, is because um, Joe Biden is tenderly saying, son, I love you. You're going to get through this drug addiction problem. Uh, you're the greatest. Uh, you know, text me yeah. back. Why would and, texts be on a laptop? I mean, interesting you'd ask that. Text my laptop would, has emails. Text, oh, a text uh, uh, would be on a laptop if... Uh, Hunter Biden's Apple iCloud account had been hacked and thus compromised, and then information from the iCloud backups had been copied uh, to the uh, these laptops to basically create fake laptops that look like they're Hunter Biden's laptops. That's why you right, have so text you're, messages. You're saying we shouldn't be it. changing our vote because of no, this. we probably shouldn't be changing our vote because Hunter okay. Biden's addicted to drugs, which we already freaking knew, and he's admitted, and he went to rehab over. And guess what? Being addicted to drugs shouldn't be a crime anyway. Well, so. I agree with that, and, and that leads into our final topic, and that is. Why I have been uh, reminded uh, that, yes, it's good that I'm a libertarian based on a movie. A movie reminded me of this. It's called, the movie is called Pleasantville. Mm. So I'm going to give you my rant on this and then Connor will be free to respond. (laughs) Uh, If you're a fan of 1950s TV and 60s TV, this movie really pulls you in. Uh, I don't know if everybody's seen it. It cost 60 million to make. It only took in 50 million to bed for the producers. It's about Father Knows Best. It's Toby McGuire's fault. Yeah. And Andy of Mayberry, the Donna Reed show, life in this movie is in black and white. It's simple. It's pleasant. There's no conflict. There's no emotion, no art, no passion or love. Everyone is one color. The local basketball team wins every single game. Doggone it. It's pleasant. A couple of teenagers are the stars, brother and sister twins, Toby McGuire, as you say, Connor, and Reese Witherspoon, a young Reese Witherspoon. Not that she isn't young now. Toby is a complete nut for the TV show Pleasantville. He's a lock to win the $1,000 trivia contest because he knows everything about Pleasantville. But then Don Knotts, Deputy Barney Fife from The Andy Griffith Show, but he shows up not as 
Barney, but as a TV repairman. Shows up to fix the broken TV remote control device that the siblings have busted during a squabble over what to watch. And when they press the button on this new space-age remote, they are magically transported to Pleasantville. They are now living in black and white in the 1950s as the teenage children of the stars of the show, William H. Macy and Joan Allen. This is long before Macy and his wife got into trouble. Uh, so after somehow coping with this supernatural event, they, the kids settle in and begin their lives in black and white in Pleasantville. But of course, because they come from the future where people have emotions and passions, they introduce these alien concepts to the town, and one by one, things and faces begin to show color. Things aren't all in black and white anymore. People start to ask questions about their lives, and they feel passion and love. But the town elders don't like this. They like things pleasant, so they fight back. They don't like color in their life. Signs crop up in store windows saying, no coloreds. Mm, very, subtle. Very mm. subtle, yeah. So then the show becomes Footloose. So that film was 1984. Right. So Pleasantville had a decent interval. It hit theaters in 1998. And it's the age-old battle between the blue noses and the free thinkers. Now, the word blue noses got me to thinking. It's a little ironic. Blue noses who don't want you to swear or have dirty dancing or work on the Sabbath, they really should be called red noses because we associate them with red states, right? Which means it would be appropriate to refer to the blue noses as people who are tyrants of another stripe, another color. Blue noses want to tell you how to think, what to say, to avoid saying things that make them uncomfortable. Blue noses want things to be pleasant. They don't like aggression. They don't like microaggressions. Mm. So the problem with blue noses and red noses mm. is that when you scratch the surface and take away their color, they're basically the same. They know what's best. They know what you should think, what you should say, how to behave in the right pleasant way. If you want to stand up and give a speech on campus on an important topic like abortion or gun rights or immigration or Obamacare, well, you can't. It wouldn't be pleasant. It would make members of the audience uncomfortable. They would feel so uncomfortable that in their minds, it would be as if you committed an act of violence. Yes, your speech, which they think is so unpleasant, it really amounts to hate speech, is actually, for all intents and purposes, the equivalent of physical violence. That's how unpleasant it is. And because it's the equivalent of violence, then physical violence in return is justifiable. S to simply sit and listen to such speech would be inexcusable. It must not be permitted to happen. And if it happens, physical violence must occur to stop it. It's the same way skinheads and neo-Nazis react to a peaceful civil rights demonstration. They can't handle the truth. They respond with violence. They drive cars through peaceful gatherings. Right. And they don't want you to have same-sex marriage. They don't want you to control your own body when you want an abortion. And if you have a knife or a joint on campus, their zero tolerance approach means you are expelled, never come back. The blue noses on the left want you don't want you to be able to drive the car you want. They don't want you to live in a wide open part of town. They want everything to be nice and dense. And the blue noses on both sides want to control what kids learn in school. They either want to teach that America is all evil or that America is perfect. So because each side is convinced that what they think is the pleasant life is vitally, critically important to achieve, it's all a matter of life and death, we can't trust freedom. We can't let people exist based on the idea of pursuing life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness because, well, things might get unpleasant. All of which makes me convinced that I made the right choice when I became a libertarian. Mm. If others disagree, that's okay. They're free to express their views because that's the liberty part of libertarian. The red noses don't want folks taking drugs. It's none of their business, but they think it's wrong. It's unpleasant. It's like swearing. It's like showing boobs on TV. And they so feel so strongly about it being unpleasant, they criminalize it. They lock people up for decades and ruin their lives because people wanted to do things that the red noses consider unpleasant. 
present. Now, both sides are interested in issues where the stakes aren't like swearing or boobs on TV. It literally does involve issues of life and death. But again, they won't put up with the debate because there really aren't two sides of the debate. There's only one side, and to disagree is equivalent of throwing a rock. So tyranny in any form should be rejected. It doesn't matter what color your nose is. It doesn't matter whether the things you consider to be unpleasant are things that conservatives hate or progressives hate. It doesn't matter whether it's the tyranny of the majority or the minority or 50% it's all tyranny. So I think Pleasantville, Connor, should be required watching, mostly because I'm a huge Don Knotts fan. Sure, Don Knotts, pretty good. Yeah. I don't know. I uh, I think you made a lot of good oh, points. Oh, we've run out of time. <laughs> My goodness. Look, oh, no, I, no. We actually have a little, a little more time. More, so little take more 15 time, minutes. Time. Just, I don't know. About, I don't think, that, don't think that's necessary. Look, you make a lot of good points about um, the, the the value of freedom. And, and, and I'll say that uh, I certainly enjoyed the movie. Um, and uh, I, I think it made some pretty good points. It, it, it's not really the pro- one of my problems with with Pleasantville watching it. Although I do do love uh, 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 the actors uh, Reese Witherspoon and Tobey Maguire were both great. Um, it takes what is kind of like a like a uh, uh, an anti misogyny uh, women's rights movement uh, movie um, sex positivity idea. And then really gets muddled with it when Joan it tries Allen, you to, go, girl. When it tries to, uh, you know, tries to wrap in the idea of civil rights as well. And it basically tries to do everything at once. And I think its message gets really muddled when it does it. The, the, I mean, first of all, it's, you know, from the late 90s, right? So it's a bunch of white people making a movie about how these two white kids solve racism and usually literally uses signs that say no coloreds allowed here to refer to people who, you know, are, are in color film. Um, and Getting there passion are passion in their life. Yeah. And there are no people of color in the entire movie at all. Not a single one. I mean, the, the premise of the movie is there that there is is I, I do appreciate that the premise of the movie is that there's this fictional 1950s idyllic America. And the movie does a good job of uh, of of. Uh, of saying this place doesn't exist now later as the movie goes on it turns out that the move the, the premise of the movie is that the movie that that place does exist and that these people actually are happy and that there's no strife and that they had nothing to be ashamed of and that they had no obligation or duty to fix the world that they lived in until people showed up and disrupted it and started getting into art and sex and then people were like i guess we could do even better than this and do art and sex on top of how right. great well, and well, white our suburb is let me ask you is. about your comment and, about about no uh, people of color I I mean, 12 Angry Men, when it hit the theater and then Henry Fonda in the movie. Yes. Uh, I think he did the stage play as well. They were all just 12 white guys. Yeah. Nowadays, they're actually doing the play calling it 12 Angry Jurors, and they have women and people of color. But sh- shouldn't we be able to judge the value of that movie from 1957, uh, uh, whether or not it, it has a diverse group in the jury? I mean, why that that was then. They didn't allow blacks on, on juries, and that was bad. But but still, the message of the of the movie comes through fine. Why why should we care? Well, what the whether the group of jurors was diverse. Well, the movie Twelve Angry Men or the play rather doesn't present the idea of an all white jury as an idyllic perfect a perfect paradise, and then start deconstructing that perfect paradise okay. as it falls apart in certain specific ways. Pleasantville literally puts up this idea of you know, a Nazi's wet dream of an all-white suburb in America and says, 
that this is pleasant, this is perfect, this is amazing. But every and then sitcom starts, was like that. Donna Reed and and Father Knows Best and all the they were all basically all white. Yeah, cast those in the are 50s. Yeah, I mean, media was white supremacist and is and remains the same now, even though we have exceptions to that. And that doesn't excuse it just because a lot of people have done it. I mean, this is this is a movie that basically tries to put on the cloak of saying like this is a civil rights metaphor mm-hmm. although metaphor is a generous term to describe the subtlety with which they approach this problem when the movie is not even about civil rights the, the movie is is about like sexual awakenings and youthful like children becoming adults right. and and in this in this you know there are adults who act like children but then have their own sexual awakenings and there's like this like just like the most ham-handed, like, oh, my God, a woman character gives a bright red apple to a man, and he bites into it, and then he changes, and Don Knotts shows up almost and biblical. scolding, almost scolding them, so you can't do that, it's horrible, how dare you, I can't believe that you would, you know, give them that man an apple, I mean, come on. He shouldn't have sent those kids be, back there if he didn't want that to happen. Right, absolutely. Look, this, this is a movie, this is a movie that takes an extremely ham-handed approach uh, at dealing with a problem, and I think its most fundamental problem, I don't even think is sort of appropriating the the ideas and concepts of the civil rights movement to then push its sort of less interesting and less broad reaching thing about like sexual awakening uh, because that is a valid thing that they, I don't think they did a great job with it but like women's lib and sexual uh, ac- acceptance and being open about sexuality by having Reese Witherspoon be the sort of 90s uh, woman who's in touch with her sexuality that the, the film like casts at, in slut shames the whole time uh, cool that's fun uh, but like she at least this story is about her sort of being herself and you know I, I i appreciate what they did with that my problem with it is it actually connects and ties into exactly what you're saying what you the reason you liked it as sort of a libertarian anthem is there's this notion of positive freedom and negative freedom that has come up before on this pod a couple of times this idea that either we are more free when the government and uh, and people are hands off of us or we are uh, that's that's negative freedom or we are more free in a positive freedom sense when the government and society do more to give us opportunity, options, uh, mobility, and everything else. If I don't have food on my table, no matter what the government says in terms of you're allowed to do anything, if I'm starving to death, I'm not free. I'm not free because I'm chained by the circumstance of not having food, or I'm not free because I'm chained by the Isn't circumstance. Not a little bit like Johnson and <clears throat> Lyndon Johnson in the '60s. We have to uh, destroy the village to save it. Uh, we have to destroy your freedom in order to save freedom. I mean, I get what you're saying. In our society, we have to have compassion, right. and we have to have justice, and yeah. we have to have freedom, and we have to have strength. Well, that's the thing. We have to have freedom. I, we we don't have to have freedom a, in the sense that. But it's a blend. That, Nothing is absolute. Right. Nothing. You're not absolute. so compassionate that we give ninety percent of our income away. We're not so right. free that we don't take money away for guns and soldiers and welfare for people who need it. Sure. It's all a matter of a blend. So, no, I don't disagree with your, your concept. There is negative and, and, and positive freedom, but I think right. we need to take it with a, a grain of salt. If the government comes knocking and saying, I'm going to take some of your money and your freedom away, uh, they may have a wonderful reason, but doggone it, make them justify 
make them satisfy their burden of proof as to why they want to take my freedom or my money. Well, let's and and the problem is I don't think we really approach public policy in that way. We're not all that skeptical or cynical. If we're on the left, we tend to say, oh, welcome, government. Yeah, take whatever you want, because I know at the end of the day I'm going to probably be better off net- netting it out than before you interfered with people's even freedom if this, and money. Even if this owner of this lunch counter is for some reason worse off as a result of this government regulation, because let's get into it. Specifically in this movie, they use that ex- exact example. No colored people right. allowed yeah. to be served here because they are, are colored in the movie sense, right? Mm-hmm. Th- that is an anti-libertarian message. That is the idea that, oh no, if you allow a private citizen business owner to do whatever they want in terms of the marketplace, they will bar people from using their service. And they did for a h- hundred years. Oh, and it you're took right. The government right. intervening. Right. Some libertarians, I think, are so extreme in their views that they say, I should be able to discriminate, rent, rent to somebody based on their race. Yeah. I should be able to say no to the lunch counter. I mean, that uh, is the, the idea and, of libertarianism. Well, it's it's an, the idea of extreme libertarianism. Right. It's not my libertarian Well, libertarianism idea. is by its nature extreme. I mean, it's much more extreme than just being a conservative in terms of government well, regulation. You can be a conservative can, or even a Republican and say, well, obviously people can't discriminate on this basis. But when you go into libertarianism on that extreme end of the spectrum, what, what else is there on the libertarian end of the spectrum other than saying, look, government should be entirely out of our lives right. when it is avoidable on a structural level. And well, it's, of course it's avoidable on a structural say, level if you don't care about outcomes. When you say what is libertarianism other than ex, an extreme uh, approach. A more extreme version of this well, idea of negative but, freedom. But, but again, you have to think of, I think, of politics as a continuum. Yes. And, and that the one extreme, you've got you know anarchy and then extreme, extreme libertarianism. You, know, you don't take anything from me. Right. Uh, we'll have our, our private police forces and so on. And then you have people who are more reasonable uh, uh, libertarians yes. who say, look, I want in general to to stress freedom, and I realize that I got to uh, violate my libertarian principles by giving you some money to pay for soldiers yeah. and for cops yeah. and for welfare because we don't like the idea of people dying in the streets. Absolutely. The question is, how much do I give, yeah. and how can you, as the government, justify? But that sounds if like you're being at the other end, if you're at the other end of the extreme of uh, of the ideological spectrum, you have Marxism and you have socialism right. and you have progressivism, and at every point they have to make that decision. The calculus has to be, you know, how much is it okay to yeah. take away somebody's freedom or money? Yeah. So it's I don't think you can label anything as being inherently extreme just because of the word. It's really everybody has to make their own individual mind up I mean, as to I, I, what's appropriate. I get it, but what are we trying to convey by using the word libertarian instead of conservative other than I am on more extreme than the American conservative? No, I, th- I think what you're trying to convey is the idea that, again, as I said a minute ago, if anybody wants to take away my money or my freedom, I'm happy to give it up as long as there's a good solid case for it. Yeah. And there should be a presumption against taking away money or freedoms. And, you know, if you if you can beat that presumption, knock yourself out. And, of course, it's appropriate every single day to, in the examples I gave about why it's good occasionally to, to take money away. So I think I think the movie just gives us a reminder. Okay, I can see that as like uh, the, the the being a libertarian is about about the, the basic presumption that uh, any government action is uh, a takings, uh, sort of in a constitutional sense, and that you have to overcome a burden in order to do that. Whereas uh, maybe 
um, in, uh, say, a conservative mindset. Maybe there are some things that qualify as a takings, but there are other things uh, that don't, where there are these sort of uh, bright line issues where uh, I simply can't tolerate or live in a society where maybe, say, abortion is happening um, and that uh, that's right. just on moral and, and, grounds. And what we also have to overcome are, are two groups of people who have different motives. If you're yeah. in government, if you're a politician, if you're a civil servant, and you have a personal interest in the growth, expansion of government, and increase in your income and patronage, and you have power because you're able to get all of your friends have government jobs, I don't think that's a legitimate motivation. I, Whoa, I, I would the, say that. And the second, the second kind of problem is if somebody doesn't think that this is really the right mix of liberty, uh, of strength, of justice, and compassion, but instead they're simply wanting a hand out. They just want money from the government. I Similarly, if you are a businessman and all you care about yeah, is maximizing that's exactly your it. profits right. and you don't care who dies and you don't want to share right. and you don't care about any kind of economic impact, these are the people I wish we could ignore and I wish we could just find you know, Diogenes, the, the honest man, and sort of the centrists making the, the decision, the calculus as to who gets uh, how we allocate the freedom and the strength and, uh, and and the compassion and the justice. The problem is the people who are most interested in politics are the ones that have the vested interest. stand interests. to benefit from it, sure. Yes, of course. My goodness, we've covered a lot of ground. We, we certainly did, yes. Uh, all because of uh, Joe Biden, Donald and uh, Trump, a, a Amy lovely Barrett, and Don, and Don Toby Knox. Toby McGuire, yeah. That's right. We'll see you next time, folks, on Too Many Lawyers. Too Many Lawyers.